Let's go to Isaiah chapter 44, since it's 7 o'clock. <clears throat> since it's 7 o'clock, we're in Isaiah. I know we weren't here last week, and I am not going to do any real review for the first part. We're going to pick up in verse 12 and try and get to the close to the end of the chapter. We'll see what happens, because what happens in the end of the chapter... We're going to pick up a guy named Cyrus, and we're going to have to make a detour to Ezra. So before we even finish, I'll be next in through Ezra, because otherwise Cyrus is a name just hanging there. So um, we're going to read. Well, let's let's pray first. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of prayer requests uh, that are going on. Rick again is uh, back in St. John, St. Francis South, so that's the immediate one. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this evening. Again, we want this time to. Uh, nourish us with your word so that we can grow in an understanding of the relationship we have with you through the, that, that likened the, the nation of Israel. Father, again, we thank you for the blessings you bestow upon us. Uh, Father, I know it's uh, been a miserable type day today, but uh, you, it's for cleansing. It's necessary for the ground. But Father, one day we're looking forward to the kingdom, the a, a perfect environment, a pleasing environment, one that you're going to rule and reign over. Father, again, we want this time to glorify both you and your Son, that we can go out and, and have a fuller understanding of your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, again, when we're reading and doing and teaching through the Old Testament, I don't, want to think, I don't want us to think we're so distant from it that we can't learn a lot from it. Uh, we're going to learn a lot from some of these words that we're going to deal with tonight. And what's, what we're going to deal with immediately is what got Israel in the worst situation it could possibly be in is idolatry. Now, when I say Israel, i got to be careful because sometimes I mix up things for you. Okay, um, In this time frame, since we're in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah starts with two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel proper. That's the name for it. The ten tribes were associated with it. Uh, the Levites were th- in both uh, southern and northern kingdom. The Levites were never granted land. Okay, uh, so the ten tribes were north. That would be the split tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. So that's why it's ten. And then the southern kingdom would would comprise Judah and Benjamin. Isaiah is the prophet to that southern kingdom. At the time, the kingdom was divided, and the northern kingdom was a, was at some point in Isaiah's ministry to go into captivity. We're in Isaiah 45, best guess estimate of time is about 701 B.C., 700 B.C., okay? So that's, uh, Northern Kingdom is taken into captivity. So when I say Israel, I'm talking national Israel, even though the Northern Kingdom is already in captivity. Now, here's the interesting thing that we've got to be aware of. The Northern Kingdom is never lost. You ever heard of lost tribes of Israel? No such thing. Uh, well, maybe we'll take in a little excursion in, in a couple of weeks and we'll see, search out why there's no such thing as a lost tribe. It's real easy. It's called Read Your Bible. Because God keeps good track. Now today, you could really say they're all lost because the records are lost, but they're not lost to God. So, But in that time, time frame, from, from at least... Now remember, here's what happens. The northern kingdom goes into captivity. They never return to the land as a whole. But people from the northern kingdom, are, A, some of them never left. And some of them do matriculate back. Okay, so they're, they're really not like, but they are starting to scatter. The full scattering of the Jewish people 
really happened after the time of Christ, when Jerusalem was leveled. Okay, so kind of remember that. So when we're looking at that and looking into this, he's still addressing the nation, but he's addressing the southern kingdom mostly because the northern kingdom is already in captivity. Kind of get what I'm saying? So I want us to kind of be a little historical when we're reading things because the very first verse that we're going to, well, first verse I'm looking at, but that's not where we're going. Uh, verse 12 says, uh, let's pick up in verse 12, and we're just going to read through 12 through 17, and we're going to just deal with that real quick as as much as we can because this is the reason, mostly, there's a couple of reasons, but one of the main reasons why the southern kingdom is taken into captivity, they could never run away from idolatry. Um, I kind of joked before class about Solomon, but one of the main reasons Solomon was marrying all these people, women, was to bring in different lands and make treaties through marriage. I mean, we've all seen movies that have to deal with that. And when Solomon was bringing that in, he also brought in the baggage that they had, and I can't remember where it is, I'm pretty sure it's in Second Kings, First Kings, um, where Solomon is chastised for taking on in the wise and then turning his life to idolatry. So, you know, because why? It's easy. You're influenced by the people you hang around and want to make happy. So his most of his wives and, what did I say before, porcupines, concubines, were all idolatrous women. You know, he didn't, he didn't seek out God's ideal. So keep that in mind when we get here Sunday, because we'll be talking a little bit about that. So verse 12. The man shapes iron into cutting tool and does his work over coals, fashioning it with hammers and working with his strong arm. He gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in his house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress and an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes uh, one of them and warms himself. He also makes fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it, it burn, he burns in the fire over his... Uh, this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast... And is satisfied. Sounds good. A great barbecue. Uh, he also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my god. Now, it almost sounds sarcastically tongue-in-cheek, but God is being very... Um, uh, Poignant, I guess is the best way to put it. He wants to jam home the reason that they're doing this is absolute foolish and foolishness and stupidity. I mean, how can you be idolatrous? That's what he's basically asking. Uh, so we're going to look, look at some of the ideas here, and, and then we're going to leave it. So we got maybe two or three ideas here. First of all, idols and their manufacturers, they're merely, in verse 12, what it's coming down to, they're just men. The men are very fallible. Uh, men are men, and, it, and how do we show our fallibility and our humanness? Well, our strength fails. Um, the, some of the boys were talking about how strong they are, and I said, good for you. I'm not about to lift weights. My biggest weight I lift is my body out of bed every morning. And I said, I could press 190 pounds right out of bed. 
That's it. Um, the reason I'm saying that because as you get older, what? Strength fails you, you know? Uh, you get hungry. What's, what's a hunger a sign of? It's a sign of human weakness, right? To restore what you need to keep going. Um, and as you look at this, remember what, what we're in a section where God's saying, here's the reality. You're serving uh, your, your false idols. You're dealing with them, and you're thinking, that's God. Now understand that. This is uh, a, a hideous form of replacement theology. Okay? Uh, I think it's in the Ten Commandments, right? Very first couple there say what? Thou shalt ignore the God before me. Don't serve a graven image. And they're, they're, they nailed that the second they became a nation as they came out of, the, uh, out, of, out of Egypt and into the wilderness wanderings. They were doing that and they're still doing that. Uh, but think of, the, think of the limitations physically man has. Wouldn't that limit everything else? Uh, I, and I think our world's great. Some of the designs I think, see that men come up with, some of the cars they design and buildings and all the radical things, we, we do pretty good, but we're, we're limited because we're human. So if, if a human is uh, making this idol, and he's making it in whose image? He, he says he's making it in the shape of a man, like, like a, what, a, a, a beautiful man, uh, or the beauty of a man. But remember, that's limited. That's so, uh, you know, I, I hate to try to do this, but man compared to God, where, where, how do you do that? And if you're t- now you're taking man's image, our humanity, and we're taking a piece of wood and copying it, and now we're going to do what? We're going to set it in the house and we're going to worship it. Does, this, does that make any sense? But I want you to understand, idolatry is just not this. It's anything we do that replaces God. So I want you to understand that. But right now, it was truly the replacement that they had taken in. They had taken in the very heathen and pagan ways of the nations around them. and uh, Which is fascinating, because Israel had every opportunity, and, and I believe every opportunity, to worship the true and living God, uh, not only through revelation, but through experience, through things that were going on, through miracles, right? They, they can actually see and experience who the living God was. And they made a choice... To, to worship some anything, let's do it this way, worship anything but the true God. What are you worshiping today? A tree. What? I mean, to us that may sound crazy, but to them that was normalcy. Uh, uh, and, and, and the thing that kind of, uh, and please, I'm not trying to be demeaning, but it so reminds me, because my first experience going to a Catholic church, I was in shock. Um, I wasn't saved at the time. I was about 11 years old, and my friends were Catholic. They went to the Catholic school. They invited me to go. So here's a Jewish boy going to a temple, uh, and there are certain rules and requirements for us. And I said, I go hang out at Catholic church. I mean, I made it the whole 45 minutes I had to be at this place. But I'm looking, and I go, they have so many statues in this place. I knew nothing about it, so I'm just saying. But they were telling me, the kids I was with, what each one represented. And I knew one thing. As a Jewish kid, I was pro that God created. I believe chapter 1 of Genesis. They don't today, really. But they were evolutionists, my Catholic friends. And they're in a building with statues that men had made. And they said, that's Mary. I go, okay. Now that I got older, I go, I don't know if it looks so much like Mary. I mean, I don't know. Wasn't there, but I'm sure Mary didn't glow like that and have that ring around her and 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 all those goofy things that come a couple. And I'm not trying to belittle it, but what's doing is they're trying to make a god in their image instead of worshiping God. 
Uh, and God doesn't, doesn't even want that. Um, but think of, what he, think of what they're making these gods out of. Just for a minute, just kind of, they're making it out of we, we, the three woods that were in here, cedar, cypress, oak. Um, decent trees, fir, four trees, fir. Uh, four, four different trees. Uh, they all serve their own purposes, but they're still wood. Who made the wood? You, you, let's go back. Creator God created this. What about the metal, molten metals that they may have made it out of? Who makes, and it says, here's the fascinating thing. Verse 14 says, and the rain makes it grow. I know that sounds very sublimal, but God makes the rain and causes the growth. And they're using the growth of this fir tree to cut it down. And, and it's the comedy side, because what they're doing is saying, we'll take some of the material to do one thing. Because if you think it was sacred, you would say, what are we going to do? We're going to burn a hamburger on the, with this stuff. We're going to heat a house with this pile. And this pile is a perfect pile. We'll cut our gods out of this pile. Do you understand the kind of... It's not really humor. It's not meant for humor. What it's basically saying is, are you that... And then they said, what's the very last part here in verse um, 17? Deliver me for thou art my guard. God, little statute, looking at it and he's saying, you're going to deliver me, your God. Well, what is that stat- What is that little idol done? You can put it on yourself and guess what? It'll sit on yourself in about eight months. I don't know how often you all clean your house. You'll have to do what to that, I- that idol? You'll have to dust it off. It doesn't even have to clean itself. You know, and 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 this is the sadness behind it, that they're doing these kind of things. And 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 understand this: this word, this phrase here in verse 17, "Deliver me for thou art my guard." God is a worship statement. That's a statement of worship. When you're asking God to deliver you, um, if many of you have read the Psalms, that's a statement of worship to God. That God will deliver me, save me. The same idea uh, that's involved in that. Uh, so what I want you to see through these verses from 12 to 17 is the absurdity of everything they're doing. And this is why God's got to discipline them because they haven't, you know, come let us reason together is not working. And sometimes it's a good guide for all of us. Sometimes we just don't need to reason together. We need some discipline and a straightforward zap of the truth kind of thing. Uh, it's almost, To me, though, I wrote in my notes, because to me it's mind-numbing stupidity. You ever met somebody who just does something, and it'll tell you this is why we, we've always done it, this is the way we're going to do it, This is what's the reason you're doing it, because this is whatever, tradition, whatever it might be. Where's the biblical idea behind it? Why are you doing that? And if you're replacing God, what's it done for you lately? You know? Uh, and I say it because it's inanimate. There's nothing here that talks of any anything animating it. There's no life there. Uh, obviously, there's life in a tree, but when you cut it and you're using some to burn, some to some to uh, heat your house, some to cook, and some to make your idols, that's dead. I, I used, you know I grew up in a day and age that my baseball bats were all wood. It's kind of weird because today everybody uses metal. All here's is ping all day long. But you you have a wood bat. It's dead. The only thing good about it is some woods get harder as you use them, and then some just splinter at some point anyway. But I'm saying there's, you're not going to walk up and say, talk to your bat. I mean, you may see some pros kissing it or something, but uh, some goofy things. But it's real stupidity to think, hey, listen, I'll hold this. You do the work. You slam into the baseball. But that's the same idea that they're, they're, they're saying. They're, they think these inanimate 
objects can do the work. 18 through 20 says this. They do not know, again, talking about the, uh, the idols. So what we're going to talk about is idolatry is nothing but deception, and we're going to th- do three Ds through this. But let me just read these three verses, and we'll talk about them. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, and their, ear, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. And no one uh, recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding, to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked uh, bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat, eat it. Then I make the rest into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. I want you to get that. A block of wood. He feeds it on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there no, not a lie in my right hand. So again, what we're seeing here, first of all, we the deceptions that we have. So listen, deception uh, starts with a comprehension that's deceived. They have no idea. They have no comprehension. Uh, so men make idols. God causes a lack of thought. There's no understanding, no sight, no hearts that can comprehend. Um, hold your finger here. Go to Romans chapter 1. Let me show you this. Because there's a New Testament parallel here in Romans chapter 1. So you would think by the time we go from Isaiah to Romans 1, we've uh, probably traversed a good uh, eight, 900 years. Depends on, well, 800 years probably. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, talking about God, God's invisible attributes, God's eternal power, God's divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what was made, so that that they are without excuse. So if you wonder who God is, go look at a tree. What are they doing with the tree? Get one of them, they're making it into an idol. So you get the, get what's going on. So if you want to have a good comprehension of God, good understanding of God, go look at his creation. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You're going to keep that path going, that you're going to reject God even when you see it clearly. God's going to let you continue on that path, and you're going to be in darkness. Uh, professing to be wise, they became morons. That's what the Greek word would be. Uh, they're very moronic. Uh, verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. This is, this is Isaiah, right? They, they, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. You, you get the, 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 the strength of that, right? The glory of the incorruptible God was exchanged for a form of corruptible man, Right? What, is, what does it say in Isaiah? The beauty of a man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. God's glory was replaced by, a, by a, 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 an icon of a termite or whatever you're going to make this thing out of wood. Well, most woods will get it at some point. What happened to your idol? Termites got it. Unless you made it out of what? Cedar, right? Cedar is termite-proof, so... Uh, verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them over. Here's the results of it. God gave them over. God allowed them to go to continue that course in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So basically, God let them travel their course. What does it begin with in his section? Exchanging the glory of God for something else. That's as easy as that. That's a very bad exchange, a very bad uh, replacement understanding. So let's go back to Isaiah 45. I'm 44, excuse me, 44. Verse uh, 19 deals with the logic 
logical minds of idol worshippers are tossed away into the fire. Basically, they've, they've, they've lost all logic. Look at verse 19 again. Uh, I have burned half in the fire and also baked over its coals. I roast meat in it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. Do you understand how illogical that is. You know, I, it's like my Dr. S- what is it, uh, Mr. Spock verses from Star Trek, right? That's totally illogical. It is. It's, there's no logic behind it and what man will do. Uh, it's so bad, his logic loses him that in verse 20, basically, they're dece- they become deceived liars because they don't even know right from left. They don't know any direction. They're just, they're just wandering in life. Uh, is there any lie in my right hand? Basically, they have no idea what's going on. So if someone's involved in these false systems of worship, uh, they serve a lie. So if you think of the cults today, it's the same avenue. They're, ser- they're serving a lie. Uh, and if they're serving the lie, they've got to be serving and honoring the father of lies. So it's satanic. And there's many verses. First uh, Corinthians has one. I know Psalms. I think it's 118 or 18, somewhere in there, that talks about uh, if you're serving an idol, you're basically worshiping Satan. That's my Eric's paraphrase. Uh, and that's that's really where we're at. Verse 21, and this is where I really wanted to go tonight, because, uh, and I think I'm st- going to be stuck on this for about five days, so bear with me. There is God's ideal. And if we all followed God's ideal, you know how wonderful this place would be? You know, I mean, listen, just take the Ten Commandments for a minute. That is God's ideal. We've already kind of dealt with idolatry, so that we're dealing with the first, second, and third ones that involve God being a jealous God, serve no other gods, so on and so on and so forth. Um, but what happens is, since we have sin, we have people who rebel against God, and even us, we tend to not do what God has divinely suggested that would give us a blessed life, so if you do what God says, you will have a blessed life. But we don't always do things because we're sinners. Not, not, not by who we are in Christ, but that's our nature. And, and there's things we could do. This, you know, I love 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. But there's a verse in there that's really great. Right in the middle of the verse it says, Stop sinning! Now why would God say that if we didn't have the power? And that's where we're at. So when we talk about this idea here that God wants from His people Israel, God wanted them to be obedient people. Read the end of Deuteronomy. You'll know that. I think that applies for us. We're believers. He wants us to be obedient people. Not to get something from Him, but because we've got something from Him. I think what happens is there's so much legalism that comes into the church today. We want to avoid it at all costs. We're not going to do anything like that. We're just going to what? Raise Cain and be happy that we're a believer and headed for the kingdom. And I think God's totally dishonored by that. That's not my personal opinion. I read it in his book. God wants us to grow in Christ like this. That's why he gives us, here's what Israel went through. Don't follow in their tracks. So one of the first things he talks about here, he wants you to remember these things. Now, I'm going to say something. I think believers, as long as well as Israel, has forgotten how to remember. Um... So God has given Israel a plan for remembering, and Israel doesn't follow the plan, which is really easy. Read his book. <laughs> you know, one of the first things. The other thing is they uh, they celebrate Passover every year. That's part of their uh, ritual more than anything today. They have Passover seders, which means uh, an order to the dinner. 
okay? And usually you must order dinner before you go because the Passover Seder will take all night. But the interesting thing is they're going through the whole history of how they became a nation and what God did for them. And the focus is all about God. And God says, remember that. Um, so what he goes back, he says in verse 21, uh, I think, well, let's read 21 through 23 for right now. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. So Israel, here's what Israel's dealt with. God's, God's kind of put them in their place in the previous verses. Now he's saying, even though you are where you are spiritually, I'm not going to forget you. So we'll, we'll go through it a little bit uh, deeper in a moment. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. A great set of verses, but I think one of the things we have to see is Israel had succumbed to these idols, and we're in a very bad place spiritually. And God has to remind them of a few things to help them uh, where they're going. Now, first of all, I want to recap a few things that we need to deal with here. When a prophet speaks of restoration, and we did this when we did the minor prophets, so many of you may not remember that, every prophet deals with a time of judgment and a time of restoration, but he's not usually speaking of near restoration. He's talking about ultimate restoration. So even though there may be periods of time of restoration, he's talking about ultimate. I remember in the uh, the late early 50s, late 40s, um, that there was a time when everybody was getting excited because Israel was restored as a nation. They became a place that the Jews were returning to. A wonderful uh, time for prophecies being fulfilled. And everybody was saying, this is it. But that wasn't it. That was a picture of a restoration type process, but it wasn't the ultimate one. But God will always do that to show you he's still working. For instance, I said a few months ago, I said, no, you know God's a God of the Bible? The nation of Israel is still on the map. Because God's made them a, a ton of promises. So I wanted you to know that. Second of all, I want us to know that since most of Isaiah then becomes history to us, and in other words, if we read, as we're going through Isaiah, I can say this is historical, this is historical. We're going to deal with Cyrus. Cyrus is going is very historical at the end of this chapter. You'll see a man named Cyrus. To Isaiah, that wasn't historical. Uh, since it's become mostly historical to us and facts of Isaiah, uh, we know Isaiah. We know Isaiah better than Isaiah knew Isaiah. Is that clear? Because I don't want to make everybody like, what did you say? In other words, when Isaiah was writing Isaiah, he didn't understand everything he was writing since most of it's being fulfilled, uh, been fulfilled in our li- before our lifetime. We know more than Isaiah. This will help. Go to First Peter. Because I know a bunch of you saying, what the heck? You lost me. Okay. Let's go to First Peter, chapter 1. And this will get us to where I need you to be to understand these verses in Isaiah 44. And then I'm going to give you some keys to when you read through Scripture to let things kind of jump off the page at you a little bit. So, First um, Peter, chapter 1, verse 8. Though we have not seen him, you love him. In other words, we, we haven't seen Jesus. Peter saw Jesus, right? Remember who Peter was? 
would have to go through a whole Peter. We all know who Peter is. First Pope, remember Peter? I didn't mean that. If anybody says calls me up, you believe? No, I don't believe that. But, but it would be funny, wouldn't it? The first Pope of the Catholic Church is Jewish. Verse 8, where was I? And though you have not seen him, you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as, an, as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. That means Isaiah, so we could just plug Isaiah in for conversation. He made careful search. He was looking into this grace that would come. So when people say, oh, you know, in the New Testament there's grace. Well, what was, what was Isaiah looking at according to Peter? The grace to come. Okay? So he had an understanding of what grace was. He just knew at this point God had to do certain things with the nation and the nation didn't come under that grace auspice until the final restoration we'll get, get at. So go back to Isaiah 44. And it's really good if you have a Bible, you can mark your place. So We won't be leaving too much tonight. Now, the rest of this. I'm just going to give you some stuff. Um, I want to give you three points before we really get into the next section. Uh, 21 through 23. First of all, I want us to remember God is very personal. God is, you know, because you talk about false religions and false things that are going on in the world today, their gods are not personal. Nobody has a personal relationship with Confucius, you know. Nobody has that kind of relation. Confucius, or we could say whoever, didn't die for their sins, resurrect, and give them his word how to live life. It's just a bunch of, um, or something like that. I may be off tune. Um, but notice in this section, as we go through this, how many times God will say, I, 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 I. Okay, nine times. So that's, he's saying, I'm doing this, I will do this, I have done this. Okay? Secondly, as we go through, I mean, well, part of that being personal, he uses personal words. Words that deal with personal relationships. He says, I have, I, you're my servant, my servant. You can put that in with the eyes, so it gives you more personal pronouns. Uh, you're my servant. That's a relationship. If we're his servant, he's our master, there's a relationship there, right? Okay? He's formed us. I hope you understand if he's the one forming the nation or even us, if he's former, what he's doing is still part and involved in what's going on. You can't just form and take his hands off. That that would be foreign to that understanding. Uh, He's a redeemer. That's a personal involvement. He calls himself the maker. Personal involvement. Uh, So so the first thing we got out of that is God is personal. Secondly, God predicts the future. Now, if we get, when we get to the part about Cyrus, here's what most people in Isaiah's would have, time would have said. is like, say, what? Who is Cyrus? There was no way to tell who Cyrus was because he was not even uh, a thought in his daddy's eyes yet. Cyrus comes around in about 536 B.C. We're talking about 701. So my math doesn't fail me. It's about a 170-year gap there. So nobody in Isaiah's time knew Cyrus or of a Cyrus. You with me? Okay, uh, fascinating thing in today's uh, crazy world, he's, he's Iranian. So it's still part of what's going on. So it's kind of interesting. God can use an Iranian to protect the nation of Israel. Does that not floor you? Because that's what Cyrus is going to do. Not only that, he's going to help him 
and give them money to do it with. It's like, what? That's unheard of. No, no. God can do this because he did it with the Egyptians first. Guys remember that story, right? Okay, thirdly, so God, first of all, God is personal. Secondly, God predicts the future by naming this guy. And secondly, God, unlike the foreign gods, is not impotent. He's omnipotent. You know, he's all-powerful, right? So we got this good, We got this idea of impotent gods. And Isaiah has said it. Let's see, one, I'm going to count it real quick. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times he'll say it in just 41 through 45 how nothing the gods are, and how something God is. And how does God do that? How do, you, how do you know mostly who God is in the Old Testament? He does fascinating things. And he, and he doesn't walk around saying, I told you so. You know, so that's, that's a really cool thing. So here's what he does. So we can get where he's going at the end of chapter 20, uh, at the end of 44, chapter, verses 21 through 28. He wants them to remember. He gives them things to remember. Now it's important because once in a while we need to do a kind of thing John does in his gospel. And I don't think most of us are aware when we read the gospel of John. He keeps poking us with who we are. As a believer, who you are. And he keeps saying this, you're a believer. And we don't always get it because in John, for some reason the translators really did a kooky job. Because most of the times it says believe in John. It's talking about the believers. So he's poking the believers. If you're a believer, you have eternal life. If you're a believer, you have eternal life. If you're a believer, you have eternal life. When you get done with John, what do you believe? That if you're a believer, you have eternal life. If you don't get that, read the last, what, uh, 20, 31. One of the reasons John even writes his book, he's saying, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, you should have known it. You read it. But you're not reading the participles because some reason King James made them all verbs and we stuck with the verbs instead of the participles, which basically says the believing ones. So we'll, we'll deal with that another time. But, but it's interesting, what we have to do is kind of poke ourselves. Uh, you know, um, Some of us grow, we may have grown up with parents that said derogatory things, and all we think is these derogatory things of ourselves, because that's all we were aimed at. And some of us you know, will grow up differently. My mom drove me crazy. She used to introduce me as a three-year-old, my son the scientist. What? What are you doing? So I grew up with this stigma, I better be a scientist or what? Mom's not going to like me, you know? And, she, you know. and she'd always tell people, you know what his second grade teacher said? Second grade teacher? Because see, my mom wanted the positive input. Where I grew up in a neighborhood that basically kids were calling their kid, kids very interesting names. Um, so, so what God does is say, here's my children, and I'm going to give them some interesting remembrances so they know who I am. And what our relationship. So he says, you are my servant. He uses it. Listen, he uses it two times in one verse here in verse 21. And guess what? If you look back to verse 1, he's already used it in verse 1. And verse 2. Actually, verse 2, I think. No, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I've chosen. He's already used it. Then he goes down further in verse 2. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Then he's going here again. He's saying, you're my servant. What's he trying to say? Israel's his Servant. I mean, this is open book test, right? He's he, their servant. Now, this show. Now, here's the interesting thing. Later, he's going to use the same Hebrew word for the Messiah, the same Hebrew word where the Messiah will be his servant. And if you know anything about a Messiah, the Messiah, he's a servant who's basically fulfilling what God wants done on earth. So, if he's calling Israel his servant, what are they supposed to be doing? Fulfilling his plan on earth. How are they doing so far? 
But God's still calling them. Now, they failed. If you were to kind of give them uh, a test and how well they did as being God's servant, you would say what? Failed, 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 failed. They didn't, they didn't do a whole lot of passing these tests. The Messiah comes, how did he do? Straight A's, passed the test, right? Okay? But as you look at them as a servant, but God's still calling him his, his servant. He wants them to remember that they're his servant. Uh, so no matter what goes through on in life, even as a believer, we are still part of the family of God if you want an application for us. So you say, well, God, I know you don't love me today. I had a really rotten day and I've done these things. And, and, you say, and God says, no, you're still my child. You can't, I can't unchild you. You know? Uh, and this, this should be a very powerful memory for the nation of Israel that they are his servant. It should be a powerful memory for us. We can't do anything to break a relationship that he established because we we entered it by faith. Do you understand what that means? Because somebody a couple of weeks ago was asking me. They couldn't understand how we don't do anything. Our faith must be doing, and it doesn't do anything. It's a channel. Because faith has to have what? It has to have an object. It's one of those sentences you've got to complete. If I said to you, I have faith, in what? Right, exactly. You have to say, in what? You know, because right now I'm thinking baseball season's coming and the Orioles have a $45 million team budget. $45 million. Yankees have $245 million. I think we don't have a chance. Thank you, Yankee fans. Okay? So I'm thinking, you know, season's over before it even starts. Okay? That's, listen, as we look at this, God has a wonderful relationship with them that He can't that He can't break because of what His promises are. He has a wonderful relationship with us because of His promises. We have faith in an object, Christ, and what He's done for us. You understand? It's not about us; it's about Him. So you could take that baseball analogy and say, if it's about the Orioles, you're sunk. If it's about Christ, you're 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 good. You understand? Now that doesn't give us license. Because why? We should understand the blessing we have and want to bring Him glory. Secondly, He says, I formed you. I formed you. And I love that phraseology. Because if we go back to the very beginning, who's our maker? I, I think we have a responsibility as human people, not even believers, to be answerable to our maker. And if you look at what's happening in this world today, there's less and less answerability, I don't know if that's a word, to the maker. It's like erasing him in everything he could possibly do. And if you erase the maker, you're really wandering in life like a Beatles song. I mean, you're a nowhere man going nowhere. And having a nowhere thing and going, it's worthless and it's boring, you know. And, and, and again, when we talk about being formed, it's part of, it's a whole thing. It's God's design, God's, God's planning, God's care. It's all involved in this word here for formed. So God formed him. So Israel, as God's formed people, they were a specific purpose, and he had a plan for them. He chose them. We already looked at verse 1. And he called them for a purpose. And this should be very comforting, knowing that God cares for his people and constantly does. So we've got two things. We have a relationship with God that doesn't get separated by what we do, and this should be comforting. And, and he's caring for us, which should also be comforting, because he formed us. He's not going to take hands off. And sometimes we'll feel like, where's God? Well, that's fine. But that's a feeling. Don't let feelings make you stupid. You can have feelings, but look at the Bible and see what it says, because God hasn't forgotten you. 
so we got to say, well, what's the other plan? What else is going on? Why is God allowing this? That's good. You can do that. But God hasn't forgotten you. Thirdly, uh, because the very next thing says, uh, you, oh, Israel, you, have, you will not be forgotten by me. So if Israel's not going to be forgotten, how's a believer? Believer, God, oh, God, God forgot you. God just left you to wander, you know. And that, that's ridiculous from every standpoint, because uh, God never forgets his people. In, in Israel's case, he has promises to fill and miles to go before he sleeps. It, it, it's basically an understanding that God has to do it, because otherwise God won't be God. If he said, these are the things I've promised, and doesn't fulfill his promises... Let's chuck this whole thing. Do you understand? God's got to fulfill his promises. Uh, therefore, if God hasn't... Let's make a little application of this. If God hasn't forgotten Israel, is Israel alone? You know, when the Hamas are bombing them and, and Hezbollah is doing whatever and ISIS is now rising up and Iran wants them dead, how well is it working for all these guys to come up with plans? I've seen in my lifetime a lot of guys that hate Israel and wanted to destroy her. They just die go into oblivion, but Israel still stands, right? So what it says to me is Israel's not alone. Um, I read my Bible, and, and the Bible says about Israel, the battle is whose? The Lord's. Even though Israel hasn't responded that well and haven't maintained that, the battle's still the Lord's. I think we can, again, apply this to us. We're never alone. And, and we're not in the fight alone. We're not in the struggle alone. God gives us plenty of things for life and godliness, Back to First Peter to deal with that. Fourth, fourthly, God has dealt with transgressions and sins. Isn't that an amen? I mean, that should be where, yes. Now, in Israel's time, that was futuristic. God was telling them what would happen. God just can't just erase sin without something. Okay, but he's, he's basically saying that uh, he, I have wiped out your transgression. Because how does God think? God doesn't think on time. So sometimes we have issues that saying, okay, God now just... Forgot everything Israel's doing. He wiped out their sin, their transgressions he's dealt with. No, God's not in time. But what he's basically saying, knowing we know the balance of the whole book, is I've got a plan that will eradicate all of your sins and transgressions. Think of that. Um, how would we do it? How would we erase our own sin and transgression? What does the Bible say? What would we have to do? Come on, Bible scholars. The wages of sin is got to die. How would you do it? If you died for your own sin right now, what would happen? You'd be dead and you would go where? Say it. Say it. You're allowed to. You're in church. We would go to hell. Because that's not, a, that's not a, fi- a final payment. It's basically the consequence of what you've done. You can't pay, for, you can't pay and get, get yourself redeemed off the marketplace. Because later God will say, what here? I have redeemed you. So someone else paid the price. Okay, I want us to see that because it's interesting and, and, and how fascinating it is. Because here's what transgression, there's two words here that we need to really look at. Transgression and sins. You ever wonder why he uses two different words? Transgressions could go like this. God said do this, the people didn't. So if, your kid said, if you say to your kid, go take out the garbage, and they don't, they just transgressed your house rules. Okay, uh, Or you can say do this. Uh, or, no, or you can say, don't do this, and little Johnny goes out and, 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 did, did, and did it anyway. You know, I'm going to do whatever I want. No, no, that's not how this works. Um, so parents, if you want some guidance, do not let your children transgress. Right? Uh, what happens when your kids sin? Well, sin is what? Missing the mark that God has set. 
So how does God deal with that perfect standard of righteousness? God has a perfect ideal, and what he says, be holy like I'm holy, and, and, and you come up short. You don't miss, you don't hit the mark. Actually, you hit the mark, but it's not the mark. It's gotta be perfect, okay? Um, what, what does God do? Uh, and it's usually attached, this, this idea of sins here in Hebrew is usually attached to anyone in, in any, uh, to one specific sin, idolatry, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and, and if you want to look that up, it's in Hosea 9 and 10. But So the people, let's just look at it here. Let's kind of bring it back for us. The people have committed many transgressions and one great sin. Right? So we can say, we're, listen, if you were to take out a pencil and say, I sinned two times today. Okay, some of you look a little holier, so one time. That's In a year, that's 365. And if you live 100 years, that's what? Just do it. 35,600 times. And God says, you sinned once, you've broken them all. Your record's not real good. Okay? And I know some of you have lied to me just now, so add another sin to that. Okay? But you know what's so amazing about grace? It dealt with all the sins. All the transgressions. Uh, and I think as we look at this we can make a declaration and say it along with that song. God, you're amazing. Your grace is fantastic because I'm not worthy. And you don't even look at me as a sinner. You look at me as a person in Christ. Isn't that cool? He says they're redeemed. Israel's redeemed. Uh, Redeemed has to do with buy back. So the first picture of buying back in Israel's economy, Israel's time on earth, is when they were bought out of Egypt. What did God do to get them out of Egypt? Uh, but a redeemer, um, I'm going to let out a little bit so you guys can know. Gary's coming here in a, in a few months, and he's going to talk about kinsman redeemer. A redeemer has to be a close relation. It can't just be anybody. It's got to be somebody special to be that redeemer. And hopefully and prayerfully he'll deal with that, so I'm not going to take his thunder ahead of time. But Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, especially Israel's. Okay? Uh, in Israel's case, he was also uh, family. He was he was Jewish. He came from a, a a tribe of what the kings. So he was their kinsman redeemer. Us, he's what he's he's came in the likeness of humanity. Uh, a really fascinating passage in Philippians uh, that he took on flesh. He became a man. Uh, now, it's, it's interesting because I look at this and, and it's difficult for me because is he looking, is he having, having Israel look back to redemption or looking forward to the redemption? You understand what I'm saying? Because looking back to the redemption, the only picture we have at this time if we're standing in Isaiah is Israel's redemption out of Egypt. And probably the coming redemption that will happen out of Babylon, but that's coming, that's prophetic to this time. So they really don't have a whole lot to fall on. And I believe this is one of the fullest understandings that we can get in Scripture. God is the Redeemer, regardless of the time frame. Do you understand? Past, present, and future. Because he's the only one that could do the redeeming. So when he says, I have redeemed my people, it's a done deal in time and space. Uh, 
Next one, redemption brings creation to rejoice. In verse 23, if you don't know this, if you, do, if you haven't looked around, now some of you uh, may be more uh, a naturalist than I am, but in verse 23 it says, Everything, the heavens shout for joy, uh, the earth, parts of the earth do, part, the mountains do, uh, every tree does, which is kind of a, a spur on the other part where they were using trees to make idols, and now the trees are rejoicing. So the idols are kind of, uh, the pre-idols are actually uh, with the trees of the field will clap their hands kind of thing. They're praising God. Uh, and if you look at outside at creation, creation's got a problem right now. Uh, it doesn't rejoice over things. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. One person said this is, in verse 23, this is a, a hymn of joy. Because uh, it's used three times, this word joy. And, and basically, uh, two, three different words. I mean, in, in English, it looks like joy, you know. Uh, but in Hebrew, it's three different words. One says give, to give out a ringing tra- cry. The other one is to raise a shout or give a blast, like a trumpet blast. And the other one would be like just a normal ringing cry. So it would be a tremendous sound of a, of a, uh, of a mast, a sound of torrent, a mournful outcry. And secondly, it would be shouting for joy, which is a mournful cry. And then the last would be to make a loud noise or, or to cry out in a loud noise. But basically, you got this hymn, this choir of creation, busting out in joy. So it's going to be different shades of it. I'm sure uh, if you've all read the verse that we are all to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, there's going to be different noises. Right? Different noise levels. Um, it's, now it's interesting because it says the heavens, the movement is a tremendous clamor for joy for what God has done. Make a loud uh, no, noise, cry out for the lower parts of the earth. All these things are going, everything is um, bursting forth with joy. I just find that fascinating because uh, it's not happening now, but we know there is a coming day according to Revel, uh, Romans chapter 8, I believe, where it says all the creation moans today. So if you lean against a tree long enough, you may hear it groan. It's not because of your weight. It's because it's, it, it, it has issues because of the fall too. And so, so here's what's interesting. I believe what happens is the whole earth, the whole creation is singing forth God's song of redemption. That God has brought it full. So when we talk about redemption, is it past? Yeah. Is it now? Yeah. But there's a fullest day coming. Kind of get the picture now? Uh, next we're going to deal with in verse 24 for, through 28. They're, they're, uh, uh, this carries over into 24 through 28. The theme where God, the Redeemer, addresses the nation. So when we look at this, God is addressing the nation as the Redeemer. In verse 24 it says, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb. Again, he's bringing up what? That he's the Redeemer. From when? From the very beginning. And how did he do that? Well, the very beginning was Abraham. He had to call Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. If anybody has ever done any study, it's one of the largest cities of that time. Huge city, very pagan city. Uh, So basically Abraham was brought up as a a pagan, idolatrous man. Uh, That's what his father was. but, but here's what's interesting. What does verse 24 do for us, and it should have done for Israel? First of all, it says this, I am the Lord, I am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and stretching out the earth all alone. 
Now just think about that. He's saying many things just in this one verse. First of all, he's saying, obviously, he's the Redeemer. That's the given, right? But if he can do all these things over all the earth, um, and all things, so we can even include the, and the heavens, so we have that, we can say he's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. Since he's already made the, uh, the uh, claim to be creator and maker, his charge is over everything, uh, and that's from the very beginning. Do you get a comfort out of that, knowing that God's fully in control? Even life can be totally out of control. It doesn't matter. It's not about you, it's about him. And that's what he's saying. It, uh, right now in Israel's time on earth, they were in absolute turmoil. If we go back a little bit to our previous lessons, Israel's being accosted by all the nations around them. And they were trying to make alliances with different groups to see if they can at least survive. And God kept insisting, trust me, trust me, trust. I don't know how many times we went through that. Trust me, trust me. How is Israel doing on the trust? Horrible. To where they still kind of tried to make an alliance basically with a dead nation at that time, which was Egypt. And you're, you're making an alliance with it. And you have the God of all creation, the God who is in control, the God. Listen, God's an interesting God. You know, do you realize he can do anything he wants? I think sometimes as Christians, we get, uh, what is it called, charismaticophobia. You know, we're afraid to saying, you know, God can do anything whenever he wants within a certain reason. And we say, well, since I'm not charismatic and I don't believe in all that hocus pocus, God doesn't do anything. That's crazy. God is doing things. Do you realize that? And and if he decides not to heal somebody, and that's all you're focused on is that one incident of healing, it's because God had a better plan. Are you good with that? You know, some would say, well, if God didn't do that, he really is not a God. Because my God will do what? Because I have faith he will do that. No, don't do that. I have faith that God is God. And that's where we should be with that. Here's an interesting fact. And I want to give you this fact. Because it's very hard in Hebrew to do this and find this. 24 through 26 is considered one of the longest sentences in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Now, if anybody knows anything about a run-on sentence... You, there's one thing you have to know. It's one major point that's trying to be made. And he uses nine participle phrases. And, and what he's saying is all about himself with these phrases. God insists he is the creator. Now I'm going to give you the idea behind this, okay? God is, insists he is the only creator. We as well as Israel are created and formed by, him, by God. No science can prove this, but God's word can tell me this. Do you understand this? I don't need science to prove this. I don't need science to say, you know, in a test tube, we prove God created. You can't do that. Last I checked, you can't do that. You also can't prove in a t- test tube you, you evolved. Just so you know. That's not real science. They've said it a lot enough, long enough, and changed the books enough to say, yes, we've all evolved. No, we haven't. Know why I know that? Been on earth for, what, 60-something years? And you all are devolving. I could see that. I read the news. There's no nothing getting better. Everything's going where? You know, I mean, that's just, that's the facts. So if we're evolving, I would want some better things. I would like to fly, like, by myself. I'd like to get the Phoenix when I want to. That's not happening, right? And I'm not jumping on a full roof to see if I grow wings because I need them. That's not going to happen, right? That's, the whole thing's crazy. You know, when I hear this thing, that this thing came out of the water and got in a tree and flew, I'm going, what? What would make him fly? He was doing fine in the water, right? I had visions when I was a kid of flying sharks. 
So here's the participle phrases. Ready? And they're all, listen, this is so fascinating. This is topside down theology. We're only going to get this from God. And it's all about himself. How would we learn about God other than God tells me, right? He says, I'm your redeemer. I'm the one who formed you. I'm the maker of everything. I'm the one who stretched out the heavens. I'm the one who spread out the earth. I'm the one who frustrates. I'm the one who turns back. I'm the one who establishes. I am the one who says, need we say any more? I think this encapsulates all of who God is. Not everything. I mean, we can't write a theological book on that, but it's a good basis for most of it, right? Think of the things that come out of this. And we could, we could, I don't think time would leave us if we tried to do that. Uh, verse 25 makes some observations. Casting the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back, and turning their knowledge into foolishness. Basically, God takes the wisdom of this world and makes fools out of men. Now, one day, I'm going to love it. I'm going to be in heaven in my easy chair, and a bunch of evolutionists are going to go before God, and God's going to say, you should have listened to Eric. You should have listened to whoever, right? And I'm going to say, told you so. God continues throughout all human history to show that he is a God is alone. If you go through human history, try this one time, and say, can I find God in human history? Because this is not a historical account, all of it. This is not all of human history. And you can go through human history, and can you see God in human history? I mean, we're going to have some craziness go on this year with elections. Can you see, I mean, some craziness. I'm not a prophet, nor do I play one on TV. But I will tell you, it's craziness. Because why? They're lunatics that are running. They're just, they are. Um, an asylum is let out. Is this going to go on air? But as I look at that, I say, you know, God's still in control. None of these guys, listen, none of these guys, or gals, let's put them all in whatevers, because I know there's a couple of whatevers, um, are running in this thing, are running for pastor or deity or head of any church. They're running for president. Use your vote correctly. That's it. That's it. And at the end of the day, God's going to have the last laugh. Uh, next, God shows man, all of man's accumulated knowledge. Oh, think of all the knowledge we have. When I was a kid, I thought it was fascinating when I actually got to see pictures of the uh, Library of Congress. You ever, been, you ever seen pictures of the Library of Congress? Then, uh, a couple of years ago, Lizzie and I went there and fascinated. It's books. I mean, we went in just Jefferson's part of his library. And I'm looking, I go, he, did he read all these books? It's like going to my office. Did he read all these books? And I'm fascinated by titles of what Jefferson had in his library. Fast. And I was told, as a kid, one day you'll be able to hold the whole Library of Congress in your hand. And my first was, what? Do you know you have the whole Library of Congress in your hand? If you have a cell phone, you've got it. You've got access to it. Isn't that fascinating? But all of that isn't one... I know, infinitesimal amount of what God is, so we're all just a bunch of fools. Because even in our best understandings, whether it's science, philosophy, whatever we have, can't, we can't accumulate and say, we got God knowledge. We got nothing. And only this is limited because God's only told us what he needs to tell us. And that, you, know, you kind of get what I'm saying? Uh, 
Verse 26, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins. It is I who says the depth of the sea be dried up, and, it, and I will make your rivers dry. So basically, this is giving us some history ahead of time. Only God can predict the future, and God predicts it by giving us this understanding here, saying, I will build up. Wait a second. At this time, Jerusalem was standing. At this time, Judah was fine. But he's telling them that it's going to be way level, and at some point, only I can make sure it could get rebuilt. And Israel today has a lot of its stones still left on the ground to show what had happened and what had caused, and then they build upon the demolition that had occurred. And one day, we know the sea will be dried up. I read Revelation. Do you know what? This is a curious fact. Every major city in the world just about is built on a river. You know that, right? Right? Cairo, London. I mean, we could do this all day. Huh? For trade. For, for, for survival. Jerusalem has what? Nothing. Nothing. And one day they're saying there's going to be a river running through that and everything's going to be dried up. And it's going to be 1,500 square miles by 1,500 square miles and 1,500 miles up. I don't know how many floors that makes. It's going to be huge. Okay? And it'll be the only place where river will be running through it. So it's kind of in, we'll do, we'll do that. Next week we're going to pick up a verse 28 and go into Ezra a little bit. So if you want to read ahead, we're going to look at Ezra. Uh, small book, you probably could read it in 20 minutes. So if you want to look ahead. So next week, let's pray. Um, and because otherwise my wife will say, nobody came and got the kids. Please release the kids. Father God, we thank you for this, uh, this evening. We thank you for a time of study. We thank you that you're a God who, who has not created and left everything to itself. You're a God who cares about our response to you. You're a God who has seen fit for our redemption, for the care of us, for the, for again, uh, you're a God who oversees everything and a God who has a plan, a plan for today and, and 50 years from now and thousands of years from now. And Father, we thank you that you hold us in your very hands. In Jesus' name, amen.